Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Salim. I believe the word of God is truly the lamp unto our feet and a guiding light for our path. And a majority of the church neglects this guiding light because it's too difficult to comprehend. Well, God has given me a hunger to study the Bible and a passion to share it with you. My friends, if we don't understand the word, how can we apply it to our lives and actually live in obedience to Jesus? So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn the essentials of living a Christ-centered life. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Salim, week 14 of this Revelation series. It was last week we got a glimpse of the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, followed by God's people, the ones who endured the Great Tribulation. And we compared and we contrasted uh, much between Revelation chapter 13 and uh, Revelation chapter 14. And we got some, some very clear understanding. I mean, we recognized what we are in is a war of worship. And there are only two camps. There are those who worship God and those who worship the beast. I mean, it's that simple. And we're now about to move beyond this idea of worship to a, um, a threefold proclamation given by angels. And this word worship has, has given way to the good news of judgment. And that sounds a little ironic, doesn't it? The good news of judgment. I mean, we, we typically don't think of judgment as good news. But we find that here starting in verse 6 of chapter 14. So we're just going to pick up where we left off last week. Revelation 14, verses 6 through 20. So starting at verse 6, it says, And I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, to every tribe and language and people. Notice John says, And I saw. I mean, there, there's an important sight to see here. John's saying, open your eyes. I mean, we have an eternal angel, a messenger of God, bringing this eternal gospel for all to hear and all to see. And what does that eternal gospel sound like? Well, this angel, he's telling us. But I want to ask you, what if, what if someone were to ask you, what is the most glorious announcement that you could ever make about God? I mean, what would your answer be? I mean, think about that for a moment. I mean, here we have in, in the midst of Revelation chapter 12 through chapter 14, this picture of the cosmic battle that is going on. It's a picture of, of time, like wrapping itself up. History being consummated and, and God bringing things to an end. And right here, just right at the apex of this, there are three angels and one of them is said to bring an eternal gospel to all the earth. And if you're in the midst of that, this, this most important moment, the most important message, and, and you have to make this glorious announcement about God, what, what do you say? Well, let's, let's look at the example that we see here in this, in this verse. I mean, time is running out. The war of worship is, is, at, an, is at an apex. And God sends his perfect messengers with his perfect message. And what's their theme? Well, it's, it's not love and grace. It's not all are accepted. I mean, it's not we're all God's children. <laughs> no, my friends, the theme here is, is judgment. I mean, is this, is this how you would answer this question? I mean, let's just be honest here. Most of us even discovering and hearing what, the, what this angel proclaims, the example being right in front of our eyes, 
if someone were to ask us this question, hey, what is your most glorious announcement about God? For the most part, we, we would feel very uncomfortable telling anyone about God's judgment. I mean, here it's the apex of the battle. You have one opportunity to give the most glorious word, the most glorious proclamation about God. What will it be? Well, guys, you know the answer and, and we don't like that answer. It's judgment. Based on the example of what this angel is bringing. And why don't we like this answer? This word judgment. Well, there are many reasons. And, and we're going to see as we walk through this text today. So this first angel brings this gospel of God's glory and coming judgment. I mean, he's proclaiming to the four corners of the earth, as it mentioned, to every tribe, every nation, every language, every people. We've seen this before a number of times in the letter, but more importantly, we see this in, in the previous chapter, Revelation 13, verses 6 through 8. Those who, who were receiving the mark of the beast were from where? They were from every nation and tribe and language and people. So here's what we hear if we're to take this in, in one uh, form of a statement to walk away with. If we just boil this, this whole thing down. This angel is saying, you stand condemned before a holy and just God. And this is a, a global proclamation. I mean, remember this importance um, of the number four. That number four is, is the number of completion as it comes to the earth. So when we talk about the four winds and we talk about the four corners of the earth, that is a reference to all the earth. And here is the reference to all peoples of the earth, every nation, all tribes, languages. So what's being said here? What's being said is tell every nation and tribe and language and people this message of impending judgment. And from the time of, of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, Jesus also gave a great commission to, to us. And what was that? To go and make disciples of all nations, to proclaim the gospel to all nations and teach them to observe what he's taught us. And what's being said there? In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he's saying, tell every nation and tribe and language and people this gospel message. So what do we see here in this verse? What we see is an intensification of the gospel going forth as the time draws near and as history draws to a close. So as the battle intensifies, the people of God, the, the messengers of God, they don't back off. They actually step on the gas as it relates to proclaiming the gospel. And as we get closer and closer to getting the gospel to all people, we don't relax. You look at Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14. It was Jesus who said, you will be hated and persecuted and killed because you are my followers. Love will grow cold. False prophets will deceive. But those who endure until the end, they'll, they'll be saved. And then Jesus ends this, uh, this chunk of scripture by saying, and the gospel will be preached throughout the whole world to all nations, and then the end will come. I mean, doesn't this sound familiar? I mean, isn't what we're saying right here and studying in this, in this verse? It says the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I mean, our desire as followers of Christ is that the whole world hears the news because this is a global proclamation. 
So we're to share the gospel every chance we get. But here, this verse also lets us know that there is coming a day when God will send this angel out to help this mission be completed. Verse 7, it says, Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all the springs of water. So we have fear God, give him glory, and worship him. Wow. But let's point out the, the, the nature of this proclamation. I mean, look at how this angel begins his proclamation of the message. Fear God. I mean, is that what you think about when you think uh, about an eternal gospel? It's like going up, you're out in the harvest, you know, evangelizing. And you're like, hey, hey, Joe, I know we just met, but can we talk about something for a minute? I just want to share the, the, the gospel with you. Fear God. I mean, that's, that's not generally where we start. I mean, this would not be uh, the most comfortable place to begin this conversation. That's for sure. But we must remember what the book says, what the Holy Bible says. It says, fear God. And we think of, of Proverbs when it says the fear of God is the beginning of what? The beginning of wisdom. So what happens when we don't fear God? Well, well, let's look back. I mean, look at Revelation 13. Why is the whole world taking the mark of the beast? Because they fear the beast. So this idea of fearing God means you don't fear the beast and what he can do to you. You remember what Jesus said? Don't fear man who can kill the body, but fear God who can kill the body and cast your soul into hell. I mean, don't fear man who says he can keep you from buying and selling. Fear God who owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills and also will judge you, especially if you enter into, into idolatry of the beast as opposed to, to fearing the almighty God. Then it says, give him glory. So what happens when we fear the beast? Will we give the beast glory instead of giving God glory? We think of, of Romans 1, right at the end of that chapter. It makes it very clear. This is a picture of the fallen world and all of this nonsense you see. These people, are, they, they give glory to man and not to God. This picture is important as we, we get to this, this proclamation of the second angel. And lastly, it says, worship him. I mean, we see this picture again in Romans 1 of people giving glory to the creation instead of the creator. And ultimately, what does it show? It shows you who they worship. They worship man. They, they worship the beast. And they bow to him. And ultimately, what this is, is it's a call for repentance. Again, I mean, let's remind ourselves of what's happening. In Revelation 13, the people are fearing the beast. They're, they're giving glory to the beast. They're worshiping the beast. In other words, the message of the angel is repent. Why you, why you have time, turn, turn from the fear of the beast, turn from giving glory to the beast, turn from worshiping the beast and, and turn to God. Guys, this is where the gospel ends up. And it's also a two-sided proclamation. We have mercy and we have judgment. So there, there's the obvious statement that the day or hour of his judgment has come, but this is also a picture of mercy. And, and why is it merciful? Because the end has come and the message is still going out to the whole world. Like right now at this point, it's not quite over. 
God hasn't stopped. I mean, this is mercy. This is like a countdown. You're about to be destroyed by superior force and the superior force comes to you and says, hey, um, you're about to be destroyed and I'm giving you one more chance to lay down your life. You have no hope in this fight, none whatsoever. And whenever the moment comes and the decision is made, you lose and you lose big. And so in, in mercy, I'm saying to you, don't fight me because I will destroy you. My friends, um, is this not mercy if you've ever seen it? I mean, here we, we've all been enemies of God and he gives us a chance to be in his family, to be made new. I mean, wow. I mean, this here is the last opportunity people will have to go from foe to friend, from, from enemy to, to son or daughter. I mean, guys, this is mercy, but it, it's so serious. In this mercy, it'll bear fruit. I mean, God isn't sending forth this, this angel to proclaim this gospel for nothing. He doesn't send his messengers, his ambassadors, you and I, forth with this gospel message for nothing. He sends forth the gospel because what? It bears fruit. And we're going to see this when we get to the end of the chapter. And we, dis we discuss the great harvest. You know when I see mercy? I mean, I think about the person who serves God their whole lives and they're saved, right? And that's the person that just, man, they give God their, their, their life from the beginning and they, they live their entire life for the Lord. And then I think of the person who spends their whole lives as an enemy of God. And then on their deathbed, they surrender to God. I mean, I think of the thief on the cross. I mean, I think of, of my dad who to this moment, I don't know where he is, but I have a sneaky suspicion that he made right with God right at the end of his life as he was struggling with pancreatic cancer. I only, I pray that he's in heaven, but that's the thing. He lived his whole life as an enemy of God. And then at the last minute, I preached the gospel to him and I can only hope that he had a, you know, a, a, a real conversation with the Lord before he passed. But that's the thing. He had an opportunity to come to the Lord, even in the last moments. I mean, this sounds unfair, but this is the God we serve. The enemy turned son or daughter is just as saved as the one who walked with God for 60 years. And here's the, here's the, the, the truth. This should make us love God even more. Not be jealous. Now, if you're someone who's listening to me right now and you're an enemy of God, please do not hear me and think, well, gosh, man, I mean, if that could happen to him, then, hey, I got the rest of my life. I'm going to live how I want and I'm going to do my thing. And then, you know, at the end, that's when I'll decide. No, get right now. Don't play with him. Tomorrow might not come. Re repent and turn today. God's mercy is not guaranteed tomorrow. I mean, you could go out after hearing me say this and get hit by a bus. Go today. Do not presume against God. Don't take advantage of this. You, you need to act now. In church, if you're listening to this right now and you, you've heard what I'm saying and you have not truly responded to the gospel and you know who you are, I beg you to consider this. Your next hour is not promised. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ and surrender your life. His judgment is coming. Don't allow your church attendance 
uh, in your family's salvation to lead you to think that you're saved. A, a relationship with Jesus is more than that. So I'm calling you to self-examine and make sure you're right with the Lord. Guys, I truly believe a nominal Christian is no different than an unbeliever. Guys, this isn't about labels. It's about relationship. It's about heart connection. It's about surrender. It's about obedience to Jesus. And if that's one thing that you get from this entire series on the book of Revelation, please understand that Jesus is calling us as the church to a higher standard. Nominal Christianity will not work. Verse eight, then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen, the great city has fallen because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. So here we have the second angel. Notice it said then another angel. So this is the second angel bringing the gospel of God's victory and judgment. This is interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, we, we don't know who Babylon the Great is. Think about this. We can read ahead. We can make assumptions. I mean, but put yourself in the shoes of the reader of the first century. I mean, what did they think when they read this? I mean, there really up to this point in Revelation hasn't been an explanation of Babylon the Great. I mean, so to me, this is foreshadowing. Kind of like when the beast or the dragon was foreshadowed in Revelation 11 and then he, he was explained in Revelation 12, Revelation 13. And just like the great city had, had been, has been foreshadowed before we see the city at the end of this letter. We'll get to, to Babylon uh, the Great in chapter 17 and 18. But Babylon the Great is just mentioned here. As I mentioned, you know, we're going to learn more about this great prostitute in, in the coming weeks. But why would John make this reference without any explanation? Well, here's why. Because everyone who heard this and, and read this, they knew about Babylon. They knew about Daniel. They knew about Nebuchadnezzar. See, see, Babylon is symbolic of this great city of man that just opposes the city of God. And before there's even an, an explanation or, or an exposition of how Babylon falls and how great the fall is, this angel makes the proclamation. Fallen, fallen is the great city of Babylon. She who made all the nations drink the wine of her passionate immorality. And this word wine, is, it's going to be very important as we continue through this letter. I mean, there, there is her wine. There, you got Babylon the great. You got that wine. And then there's, this, there's God's wine. And we're going to see the difference. And so if there were a statement to go with this and something to take away from, from this, it would be everything that you know and love and cherish and worship and believe stands condemned before a holy God. That, that's the message that this angel brings. This world system that we've been programmed to believe and follow and seduced into loving is absolute trash and will be tossed into hell, period. And so I, I just urge you to, to get up out of the matrix and open your eyes and, and wake up. So this first angel brings a message that is letting the world know that each one of us, unless we've surrendered our lives to Christ, we stand condemned before a holy God. And the second angel brings a message that lets the world know that not only do you stand condemned, but everything and everyone you know stand and love stands condemned. Everything you worship, guys, it stands condemned. Everything that you hold near and dear to you stands condemned. Everything that impresses you stands condemned. Everything that your, your heart's desire, it, it, it stands condemned. Everything you're working towards, it stands condemned. 
because it's all part of Babylon the Great. And what's the, the way out? <laughs> Fix your eyes on the land, the one who stands on Mount Zion. Friends, everything that you're, you're trusting in, it stands condemned. This is a picture of the great city of man and, and all of his accomplishments. And I'm not saying that all that man has accomplished in history hasn't been great. I mean, it's significant. I mean, modern medicine, human beings walking on the moon. I mean, the things we've, we've accomplished in art and in architecture, science. I mean, look at the cars, look at ships, look at planes. I mean, it's all impressive, but this is a picture of common grace. And if we see all of this and fail to see God, I mean, we essentially worship the creation and forget the creator. And this is the problem. See, we worship the city of man and we forget God. So when we hear of this angel proclaiming that the great city of Babylon, the great city of man has fallen, this is a clear warning that all that we marvel over and all that we worship here on earth is, is fleeting. Yes, it's all great, but it's all going to burn. So stop, heed this warning. I mean, this world system that's set up to lull you away pales in comparison to God and the trust in it is idolatry. And God's going to judge those who fall into this. Friends, I just, I urge you to acknowledge it, but don't worship it. I mean, as great as, as, as this city is, what's greater is its sinfulness. And God is going to wipe it off the planet. And he's going to wipe those who hold hands with it off the planet. And if that's you, well, there you go. Verses 9 through 11. Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It's been poured full strength into the cup of God's wrath. And they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night. For they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. So this third angel brings the gospel of God's wrath and, and manifests judgment. I mean, notice the word wine used here again. It's very important. I mean, if the statement of the first angel is you, you stand condemned before a holy God, and the statement of the, the second angel is all that you know and love and believe stands condemned before a holy God, then the statement of the third angel is all that God condemns is condemned completely and eternally. Friends, God does not tolerate rivals of any kind or in any way. God ain't, he's not playing second fiddle to anything or anyone. So what is the sin represented here that causes judgment? Those who wear the mark on their forehead and hand, they're the ones that are going to be judged. Ultimately, it's idolatry. And as I've been saying, it's our worship. That's the mark. And you're either marked by God or you're marked by the beast. And we know that sexual immorality uh, of Babylon the Great and the whore of Babylon is, is a metaphor for idolatry. And so this, this great sin is ultimately idolatry. Friends, all of our sin is, is ultimately boiled down to idolatry. It's either idolatry of self or idolatry of something else that we value more than we value God. So when, when I value myself more than I value God, it's idolatry and it leads me to sin. It leads me to find illegitimate ways to accomplish legitimate means. It leads me to find alternatives to get things that only mean something when they come to me from God. And it's ultimately idolatry. All of our sin stems from idolatry. And then we notice the nature of the judgment, the wine of God's wrath. 
I mean, in Revelation, wine, wine represents God's wrath in two ways. First, when, when the grapes are crushed, their, their red juice flows from the wine press like the blood of God's enemies when he treads them down. I mean, we see that in, in Revelation 14 and then again in 19. And, you know, that correlates to Isaiah 63.3. Second, when the wine is fermented, it, it, its mind-numbing strength symbolizes the confused stupor of those who will, who will drink God's cup of wrath. I mean, this says that they will be tormented. Then we see fire and we see sulfur. And this takes place in the presence of the lamb. It takes place forever and ever. And it takes place without rest. I mean, this is what we call hell. And I know right now, some of y'all are thinking, well, Salim, you said that we could read parts of Revelation symbolically. I mean, could, could hell be symbolic? I mean, here we have a, a picture of hell and sulfur and fire and eternal torment. I mean, maybe hell isn't real. Maybe it's symbolic, right? Well, before we go there, let me just give you a few things to think about. Hell is not talked about just in Revelation. It's, it's talked about all over. I mean, this picture here of, of drinking the cup of, of wine of God's wrath is symbolism. But what is it symbolic of? Guys, it's symbolic of hell, which is real. So this idea of fire and sulfur and torment that is mentioned, this is symbolic of what? It's symbolic of hell, which is real and eternal. Friends, hell is real. It's not symbolic. I mean, we see it all over the Bible. We see pictures of hell. We see pictures of hell in places that aren't symbolic. I mean, Jesus spoke a lot about hell and he wasn't using symbols. I mean, he straight up said, those who reject him, those who don't repent and turn and surrender, they will be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when we come here to Revelation and we, we do see symbolism as it relates to hell, the symbolism is actually just used to point to the intensity of God's judgment that is poured out in hell. I mean, what would hell be symbolic of if there was no hell? I mean, seriously, think about this. God is going to judge those who refuse him intensely. There is going to be fire and sulfur and extreme torment. Hell is real and it's forever. And there aren't words to describe the horror that it's going to be for these people. But those who, who follow the lamb, we escape this. But he, here is a question. Why do we object to hell in the first place? I mean, people object to hell because it makes God seem cruel. That God would send people to a place of eternal torment. But, but this is based on a caricature of God. I mean, you know, those pictures that, that people draw where they take certain features and they, they overemphasize them and exaggerate those features. And then the rest of the features of the individual are underestimated. I mean, you may have an entire picture of an individual and two thirds of the picture is a person's head and, and aspects of their head. And then the rest is their small little body just to let you know that, that this is the rest of the person. And a good caricature is only good if you know what the person looks like. So in our society, we have this caricature of God. And what's exaggerated in, in, in our society is, is love. And it's not biblical love. It's man's sentimental understanding of love. It's unicorns and rainbows and, and butterflies. So when you begin to talk about hell and all you have is, is this caricature of God, guys, it's idolatrous. Why? Because it's an image of God that is formed and it's, it's absolutely not accurate. Guys, we must understand that God is perfectly just. And here's the truth. Justice is never cruel. Justice is what? It's deserved. And let me show you the great irony of not believing in hell. You see how our society attaches themselves to stories where people have done something terrible? Like a cop kills someone of the opposite race or, you know, you know, you, 
you know, we see a, a person walk into a school and shoot up the school and kill all these people. You know, we got a man murdering his wife. You know, the crimes go, go, goes on and on. What do we want? We want justice when that happens. We demand uh, the punishment for the crime. Everyone cries out for justice and punishment for what individuals have done. And here's God saying, you know, here's justice. And we say, well, we don't like that. That's not fair. Man's justice is okay, but God's justice, not so much. Guys, this is sinful. Guys, we all yearn for justice and, and there's a reason for this. And the reason that we yearn for justice is because we were made in the image of God. And we have to understand that we've sinned against an infinitely holy God. And, and for that, we, we should be punished infinitely. This eternal justice is, is God's justice. And, and we don't, we have really nothing that we can say about it. It, it. it just is what it is. And when we object to hell and, and how we view sin and how we view God, we're, we're merely looking at things through a carnal lens and it's absolutely disgraceful. Verse 12, this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. This is a call to all saints to endure until the end. And this is the common theme that we see weave throughout the book of Revelation, this command to endure. And here we have the purpose for this proclamation. It's, it's the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and maintain their faith in Jesus. Notice we don't hear endure because God is going to rescue you. Yes, we are encouraged to endure because God will save us. But notice here that we are encouraged to endure because God is going to judge the wicked. That, that's the whole point. And so this should call us away from, from vengeance. And the problem is a lot of us, including myself, we, we may be struggling with, with the fact that someone's wronged us and, we, and we, we have this desire to retaliate. But God here is saying, suffer patiently. Vengeance is mine. I'll take care of this. And we as the saints, as the church, we trust this and, and this should give us rest. Guys, we don't have to fight the battles. He, he, is, he is the one that fights for us. And the statement here is that God's condemnation of sin is a source of encouragement to the saints. And, and not in a, a sense of gloating, not at all, but, it, but in a sense of worship. I mean, this is the God that we worship. He, he is just. And in his judgment of the wicked, we are reminded of that. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they are blessed indeed for they will rest from their hard work and for their good deeds follow them. Notice John says, and I heard. This is important. Here is the, our next purpose for this proclamation. First, we've got the call for the endurance of the saints. Second, the call for the faith of the saints. And notice I pointed out seven Beatitudes in the introduction to Revelation weeks back. And here we have, have number two of seven. He says, blessed are those who die in the Lord. And we have several things that, that we can take from this. First, we take from this that our greatest goal is not centered around the things that we accomplished or experienced in the here and now. Yeah, we praise God for all his blessings in the here and now, but they pale in comparison to the blessings that are ours in eternity. Second, being sealed means that we are rescued from God's judgment, but it does not mean that we're rescued from the wrath of his enemies. 
In fact, it usually means an intensification of, of this wrath of his enemies against us. So this is very important for us to understand. Again, in the here and now, we will experience the wrath of God's enemies. And if we don't get this, what, what we end up having, as I mentioned, is an, an over-realized eschatology. And just to remind you, an, an over-realized eschatology looks at really the consummation of all things and, and what we're promised in the age to come, which is heaven, and expect, expects to experience those things in the here and now. And this is one of the biggest things that's, you know, what's wrong with the word of faith movement. The word of faith movement, it looks to uh, those things that are promised to us in the eternal state and tries to bring them into the here and now. And then what they do is they blame you if you don't get them because you didn't have enough faith. They say, if if you did have faith, you, you could have it all in the here and now. Friends, no one who reads Revelation can believe that. And if they do, they're they're deceived. And not just Revelation. I mean, go turn to 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ. What does it say? It says, buckle up because you are going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. It doesn't say all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ are going to be rich and healthy. I mean, get out of here with that. Guys, we know what Jesus told us. He's the one that said, no, if the world hated me, the world's going to hate you. And there's the picture. You follow Jesus in a biblical manner and get ready for the narrow road. And many don't want to travel the narrow road. Many want to travel the wide, shiny, paved road with, with flashing lights and all the glitz and glamour. Guys, if you got preachers telling you, preaching this wide road message, you need to run for your life. That message is absolutely demonic and it's causing many to fall you know, fall away. Third, God judges sinners so we don't have to. First of all, let me just say, I I don't cast my judgment against sinners. I mean, if I have to make any statement about sinners or sin, it, it, it is a statement of what God says about them. It's what the book says. I mean, that, that's not my department. I mean, yes, we, we lovingly share truth with them standing on God's word, not, not on your own, but we, we, we have to understand that, that that's between God and them. And so we don't have to seek people out and find out what they did and know what they did and experience what they did. I mean, God takes care of that. This is where we read in the Bible, vengeance and judgment, they belong to the Lord. Last, knowing this should not lead us to sit back and gloat. I mean, what we have here is judgment is at the door. The ram is about to hit the gate. It's about to be over for unbelievers and time is going to be up. And what does God do? He, he sends his angels to proclaim an eternal gospel. I mean, this is so counterintuitive because our natural response is this. World, you hate us, but God is about to lay the smack down and we're just going to watch it happen. And we're going to be happy about it. I mean, that's our natural response. I mean, we sit around and pray that judgment will come because of the way people treat us for our faith in Christ. Friends, that is not this text. This text tells us time is almost up. It's almost too late. So intensify your proclamation of the gospel that those who deserve judgment, they might just be saved. They'll be spared. And guys, this is counterintuitive unless you remember yourself. And how dare we have any other attitude towards any other person anyway? I mean, how dare we not remember our own life and our own sin and the wrath of God that we stored up for ourselves and how his glorious mercy saved us and then turned around and 
and, and turn around and look at a lost person and think you're not worthy of that. I mean, who do we think we are? I mean, if this is you, who, who, who do you think you are? So now as we're hated for our faith in Jesus and we proclaim this good news to the sick and the lost, what do we do? We recognize that this comes from the same place that we were at before God found us. You know, we were once like them, rejecting and hating light because we too lived in the dark. I mean, we, we, we lovingly and desperately preach to the lost the same gospel that saved us with intensity and passion and grace. Why? Because we love God and we desire for his name to be glorified and for all people to be saved. Even the most wretched people. Why? Because at the end of the day, we're, we all deserve judgment. We are all sinners and we are all equal at the foot of the cross. So as we wrap up this section, we now move into this next section, which is this great harvest at the end of age. And the way John depicts this picture is rather matter of fact, and in some ways quite gruesome. I mean, it's not pretty. It's not pleasant. But guys, it's real. And it's true. And it's coming. And so we need to make ourselves aware and make ourselves prepared. So let's just recap before we move on to the next section. There has been a spiritual war, good versus evil in Revelation 12 through 13. Then we get to Revelation 14 and we see the lamb who, who is Jesus standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000 who is the church faithfully following, which represents redemption after the spiritual war. We then see God has sent out these three angels who have made the merciful gospel proclamation just as Jesus is at the door, preparing and warning all unbelievers on the earth to turn from their wickedness. This is the, the last chance. And as we come to this point and judgment is here, we look at these next six verses and these represent the moment that Jesus returns and it's, it's going to be too late. I mean, this is a picture of um, the end of age when Jesus comes and separates believers from unbelievers, the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. And guys, this is an absolutely terrifying picture. And also as we, as we look at the next six verses, there, there are also 10 attributes that we see describing Jesus and we've got to get these. Verse 14, then I saw a white cloud and seated on the cloud was someone like the son of man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Notice John says, then I saw. I mean, this, this is a picture of Christ at the end of age. Number one, Christ is righteous. First of all, because Jesus is sitting on this white cloud. I mean, there are many depictions of clouds in the Bible and there are many depictions of clouds in Revelation, but what is different about this cloud is it's white. And you don't find that anywhere else, just here. And there is this picture of, of this cloud being white. And we've seen white a number of times in Revelation. And we'll, we'll see it a number more times in Revelation. But when we see it, what does it depict? Well, let's look back. We have the saints in white robes. And what, what does the white robes represent? Well, there it represents righteous deeds. Later on, we're going to see uh, the bride who's made herself ready for the groom. And what's she wearing? She's wearing a white gown. And what does the white gown represent? It represents righteous deeds. <laughs> Guys, it's a picture of righteousness. And so here is the one seated, not just on a cloud, but on a white cloud. And why is this important? We're, we're about to talk about judgment. And judgment 
requires righteousness. And for, for one to exact judgment, one must be righteous. And if Jesus is anything, he is ultimately righteous. I mean, this picture is brought forth from Daniel 7, verse 13. Notice the wording. I mean, notice the distinction from the Son of Man and the Ancient One. Father, Son. The Son was given all authority. His rule is eternal and his kingdom will never be destroyed. And then we look at Matthew 26, 64, and, and what, what, did, what Jesus tells the council. You remember that when he was arrested and, and beaten and bloodied and, and he was taken in front of the council? What did he say to them? When this, in this text, he says, you will see the Son of Man seated in power coming on white clouds of heaven. And he was referring to the end of age. He's referring to this right here. And then we look at Acts 1, 9 through 11. He left on a white cloud and the angel said what? That he would return the same way he left, on a white cloud. And here we have John writing down what he saw, who, by the way, was present in this scene from Acts 1, letting us know all of this. I mean, this refers to the righteousness of Jesus. And guys, this is essential for us to even understand the rest of this chapter. And it's absolutely essential to understanding the book of, of Revelation. It is all about the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is, is that he is judge. <clears throat> his righteousness is in his redemption of his people. Jesus is righteous both objectively and, and subjectively. Objectively, he's righteous because of who he is. His very nature, his, his very essence. He is God. In him, there, there is no shadow of turning. In fact, being God, he defines righteousness by his very existence. I mean, righteousness can't be defined outside of God. And in order for righteousness to be defined outside of God, there, there would have to be something more righteous than God. But there is nothing more righteous than him. So he defines it. He, he makes up the rules. Not only is he objectively righteous, but he's, he's subjectively righteous. I mean, Jesus came to earth. Guys, he, he put on flesh and then actually lived a perfect, perfectly righteous life. I mean, he personifies righteousness. He kept the whole law. Number two, Christ is incarnate. Notice the one seated on the white, seated on the white cloud was, was someone like the Son of Man. I mean, th this is a reference here. I mean, Christ took on human nature at his incarnation. And though he, he's glorified and exalted, guys, he remains in flesh at the right hand of the Father. He, he remains the God-man. God, God took on manhood. He, he grew up. He, he hungered. He, he was thirsty. He, he bled. He died. He has a body. And when he returned to glory, he returned to glory in his body. And just like Christ did, we'll do the same. Christ, the incarnate God, remains the incarnate God. And what was Jesus' favorite term for himself? The Son of Man. I mean, again and again, he referred to himself as this. I mean, check out what Jesus said in John 5, verses 25 through 30, when Jesus speaks of the end of age. Guys, this is the incarnate Christ. This is God the Son. Number three, Christ is king. I mean, notice he had a golden crown on his head. Christ is king. And it was earlier on in Revelation 1, 4 through 5, John introduces us to, uh, to the Jesus of the apocalypse. He gives us the trifold expression of who Jesus is. Faithful witness, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. He is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. I mean, look at Psalm 2, 6. 
God the Father has placed his chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on his holy mountain, Mount Zion. And who was Mount Zion? Well, in Revelation 14.1, it's Jesus. Now he, he is here on the white cloud with a gold crown on his head, letting us know that he's king. And this tells us that there is no authority higher than his authority. He is sovereign. He is, he is the ruler. This is who Christ is. And we must think of Jesus this way because if we don't, we're not thinking about him rightly. And if you're just thinking about Jesus as your, your good buddy or, or your home slice, your homeboy, guys, you're not thinking about him rightly. I mean, is he your friend? Absolutely. But he's also the king of kings. And don't forget that. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah and he's not a tame lion. And he will come back roaring. And it will be terrifying. Verse 15. Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud. Swing the sickle for the time of the harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. Number four. Christ is divine. He, he is the eternal son of God doing the will of his father. I mean, there, there, is, there is a question that that I had here when I read, you know, when I was reading this text. And, and the question was, why, why is Jesus receiving an order from an angel? You notice that the angel comes out and tells Jesus to swing the sickle. I mean, wasn't it Jesus who, who said that he, he does nothing on his own accord, only in obedience to his father? I mean, he is the eternal son of God doing his father's will. But then I, I thought back to what Jesus said in, in Mark 13, when he said, no one knows the day or the hour of the return, not, not the angels or the son, only the father knows. And I remember thinking, man, this is striking that God, the son says this. It's hard for me to grasp Jesus not knowing the day or the hour. But what this text reminds me of is that the son is the one with the crown on his head, with the sickle in his hand, because he knows what's going to happen. He just... He just doesn't know when. So again, the question, why, why is Jesus taking this order from this angel? Well, we've got to notice in this verse where this angel comes from. And the angel comes from the temple. And what's in the temple? The throne. And who, who's on the throne? Well, the one who was and is and is to come, the father. And he says to his messenger, tell my son it's time. The father tells the son, it's time to get your bride. So the angel who simply is the messenger comes from the temple and announces with a loud voice, this word that has come from the temple and the eternal son of God, who was obedient even unto death goes. Jesus only reaps when the father says it's time to reap. He is the eternal son of God and he hasn't stopped and he will not stop being the eternal son of God. I'm sorry. I just had to nerd out on you there for a while, for a little bit. <laughs> It's interesting to me. Verse 16. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the whole earth was harvested. So number five, Christ is the redeemer. This reaping in verse 16 is not the reaping of judgment. This reaping is the reaping of the harvest. This is the redeemer reaping the harvest of the redeemed. And so this caused me to ask a question. Why, why do we pray for unbelievers? I mean, why do we share the good news? Well, in Matthew 9, 37 through 38, 
You remember Jesus tells his disciples that the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. And who is the Lord of the harvest? The Redeemer. It's, it's Jesus. Who reaps the harvest at the end of the age? The Redeemer that we're reading about, Jesus. Because it's his harvest to reap. We, you and I, church, we work in the harvest, but he is the one who reaps the harvest. This here is the harvest of the redeemed. And, and this is the, the harvest that he spoke of in Matthew 9. And let's remember that Jesus will have the fullness of his reward. And at this moment, right here, right now, the fullness is here. Number six, Christ is judge. So this sickle in Jesus' hand is symbolic of judgment. And here Jesus is sitting on this white cloud with the sickle in his hand. And the salvation of unbelievers um, is an act of judgment on the unbelievers. How? Well, when Christ reaps those who are his, and, and you and I enter into our eternal uh, reward, that, that's part of judgment on sinners. That They are not part of the harvest. They, they don't enter in. You know, guys, they're, they're left out. So there's also this sense in which Christ is judged because Christ is the one who de determines who is reaped in the first reaping. The command comes, it's time to reap. Notice that Jesus doesn't reap everything. There, there are some that are left. And what is left is left for the winepress of God's wrath. I mean, look at Matthew 13, verse 30. Remember the parable that, that Jesus told about the wheat and the tares? You remember how it closes? He ends up saying, let, let both grow together until the harvest. And then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them and put them and put the weed in the barn. I mean, this right here is where we are. So how do you determine who's reaped for the harvest and who's reaped for the winepress of God's wrath? Well, you only determine that if you're a righteous judge and that's who Jesus is. And as the righteous judge, he determines who's in and who's out. And there's a very clear message for all people in Acts 17, 30 through 31. It says, God has overlooked people's ignorance in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. God is going to judge the world and he's going to judge the world through a man who was raised from the dead. And that man is Jesus. I mean, this, this is who we see seated on the white cloud with the sickle in his hand. Number seven, Christ is, is long suffering. I mean, we have the redemptive history mapped out in front of us in, in Revelation 12 through 14. And we, we must understand that Revelation 12 through 14 are a depiction of thousands and thousands of years, not decades, not, not centuries, not millennia, thousands of years. And it's been a long time since Jesus ascended. And we currently wait for this moment. But Jesus, guys, he's long suffering. And that is the point. In Revelation 6.10, we get a picture of this. When God's people cried out, asking him, how long until you judge? And his response, just wait a little longer until the full number of your brothers and sisters and my fellow servants are to be martyred and will join. I mean, do we even grasp what Jesus is saying here? I mean, just think about this. There are martyrs who have been killed because of their faithfulness to Jesus. And they asked Jesus, how long until you avenge us? And his answer, wait, because there's more of my people to be killed. I mean, how else could you hear that? And even, and, 
I mean, how do you describe God in, in, when you read texts like that? Long-suffering, patient, slow to anger, full of grace, full of mercy. I mean, how would you react? Well, I know how we react. We, we don't react like God does. We get frustrated. We get impatient. We, we have anger towards people. And so what I want to say is before you and I get frustrated, before we get impatient, but let's remember that we've got to be very careful. And we've got to be careful being impatient with God and even asking him this question. Because every time that you and I take a breath and say, God, why have you not judged these wicked people? We must remind ourselves that we too were in the very same condition. And it was, it was the long suffering and the patience and the grace and the mercy of God that waited until the moment of our salvation. And we were able to come into the wheat harvest and not be counted in the other harvest. And all because of the long suffering of God. Guys, he waited for us. He was patient with us. Every day of our lives we came to Christ was a day when we heaped up condemnation and, and were worthy of this winepress of, of the wrath of God. Every day since then, we, we have thought things and we've said things and we've done things that, that have made us worthy of this winepress of God's wrath. But God is patient. And that's what's meant in 2 Peter 3 when it says the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. He's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. Number eight, Christ is faithful. Thousands of years. And in 2 Peter 3, the scoffers keep saying, where, where is your Jesus? I thought he was coming. Where is this justice you speak of? Where, where is this, this deliverance? But what do the scriptures say? To the Lord, a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years. And no matter how long it takes, rest assured he is faithful. And if he says it, it will come to pass. Because what he says he will do. Because he is righteous and he is God and he is faithful. And we've got to remember that as his followers. And unbelievers, you better remember that too. God is faithful. And just because you've gotten away with all of your shenanigans up to this point, doesn't mean that you're going to get away with it forever. Just because the justice of God has not come to you, doesn't mean that there is no justice of God. God is faithful and it works both ways. It works in both harvests. Believers will be redeemed and unbelievers will be judged. Number nine, Christ is victorious. Guys, his, his enemies will be judged. Friends, he is more than lowly Jesus, meek and mild. He, he's not some sissified Christ. This is the God man. Righteous judge with a sickle in his hand. And later on in Revelation 19, we're going to see this, this victorious king riding in on a white horse with fire in his eyes and a sword on his thigh. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the judge of all things. He is the victorious judge. Now, moving to the last attribute, let's read verses 17 through 20. I wanna, we wanna check out this picture of this, this angel coming with the sickle. After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel who had the power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, swing your sickle now and gather the cl clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth for they are ripe for judgment. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth 
and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside of the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. Guys, this picture is scary. And this picture is from Joel 3, 13. When you go to Joel 3, 13, it says, Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread the grapes, for the winepress is full. The storage vats are overflowing with the wickedness of these people. And there's also this picture uh, from Isaiah 63, verse 3, where it says, I have been treading the winepress alone. No one was there to help me. In my anger, I have trampled my enemies as they were grapes. In my fury, I have trampled my foes. Their blood has stained my clothes. Guys, these are gruesome pictures. It is a gruesome picture of the victorious Christ. I mean, this is God's victory over sin. This is God's righteousness poured out. I mean, this is the point when all people on the earth realize that they've made a huge mistake and there will be no turning back. Guys, this is when God destroys the wicked. And look how, look how it's described. The picture of the blood running as high as a horse's bridle for 180 miles. I mean, this is the height of a horse for almost 200 miles. And whose blood is this? Well, it's the blood of the wicked. I mean, just imagine this. I mean, th this is a gruesome picture of the victory of God. But remember where we started. Guys, this is a war. In the war, it's over in an instant. I mean, th this is not like a hard-fought battle. Jesus comes and it's a wrap. And so knowing this, hearing this, reading this, this dispels this great myth that, that things are actually in great doubt, that there's a God on one side doing his best, you know, and then you got the devil on the other side doing his best and they're like duking it out. And sometimes God has the upper hand and sometimes, you know, the devil gets the upper hand. Friends, the future is not in doubt. Christ will be victorious. In fact, Christ is victorious. You and I are merely waiting. The one seated on the white cloud is not biting his fingernails uh, in anxiety. The one on the white cloud is just waiting for the word to come from the throne room. He knows it's coming. He's just waiting for the fullness of the wheat harvest. But his victory, you best believe it's secure. Number 10, Christ is worthy. What is he worthy of? Well, he's worthy to judge the world because he's God and he's righteous. He's worthy to wear the crown because he's king and he's, he's the Lord of Lords. Christ is worthy to reap the wheat harvest because he is the redeemer of God's people. Christ is worthy to reap the harvest of the wrath of God because vengeance is his. Guys, we'll wrap this up. Let, let me remind you that Christ alone is worthy of our worship. Why? Well, we go back to the, the garden of Gethsemane. Did you know that the name Gethsemane it means olive press. And we got to remember that Jesus, he was crushed under the weight of sin. Your sin, my sin, the weight of God's judgment. And Jesus says something that you don't get unless you get this. Remember when Jesus says to the Father, he's, he's calling out to the Father, is there any other way that this can be done? Is there any way that this bitter cup can pass from me? And remember, the father was like, no, you, you, this, this has to happen in order for the mission to be complete. 
And what cup is Jesus referring to? Well, based on this text, it's the cup of, of the wrath of God. Let me ask you this. Why, why is there even a wheat harvest? And why are we not part of the harvest of grapes of wrath? Why don't, why don't we get that? Because we sure do deserve his wrath, don't we? And the answer? Because there is the one who drank the cup on my behalf, on your behalf. There is one who was crushed under the weight of God's wrath, whose blood was spilled on our behalf. This is the one who died the death that I owed. He was completely righteous. He was completely obedient. He endured the wrath of God on my behalf and took my sinfulness on himself. And he paid the price that I owe. And the reason that there even is a first harvest and anyone is even a part of it and not the second harvest is because Jesus, Jesus has, has tasted fully the second harvest. Jesus drank the bitter cup that was prepared for me and then turned around and gave me the cup of the covenant. His body was broken so that mine could be made new for the age to come. He, he fully endured the wrath of the almighty God so that I can feel the full embrace of the father welcoming, welcoming me home and into his family. So how dare we give our worship to anyone or anything else? How dare we hold hands with the world? How, how dare we even flirt with these idols? Guys, I'm guilty. You're guilty. We're all guilty, but God's grace is for us. And what we need to do is just repent. And we know he's faithful to forgive. So we've heard these amazing 10 attributes about Jesus. But this text, it also says something about us. And as we, as we close this out, let me just quickly remind you, church, of five things that this text says about us. First, it says that, that our redemption is secure. Why? Because it's not in our hands. It's in the hands of the one who sits on the white cloud. No matter how long it takes, we are secure. Second, our number is not complete. Christ will have the fullness of his reward. The harvest is not ready. The, the work is not complete yet. Which leads me to number three, which means the gospel will bear fruit. Why? Because the number's not complete. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So we know that the gospel will bear fruit. We know this because it's not dependent on you and me. So keep preaching the gospel. Fourth, our home is not here. This text reminds us that our home is not here. We, like the patriarchs, are looking for the city whose, whose foundation is created by our maker God. Not this place that was built by human hands. Guys, we're citizens of heaven. We are merely passing through as sojourners. Don't set up shop here. Live, live, you, you pack your bag and you live out of your suitcase. Because it could be any day that we could be going home. Don't get too comfortable. Fifth and final, our hope is in Christ. If our hope was in anything else, we, we, we wouldn't have hope. We'd have despair. But our hope is in Christ the righteous redeemer and judge. Our hope is in the one who's seated at the right hand of the father forever making intercession for us. He's our defender. Our hope is in the one who said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. Guys, our hope is in the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Guys, it is Jesus, the eternal son of God, who is our hope. My friends, 
Remember this. Allow these things to sink down into your heart. Allow these things to give you the confidence that you need to endure. The faith you need to endure. Guys, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Tune in next week for episode 15 as we jump to Revelation 16. And Revelation 16 is a picture of of the ultimate wrath of the Almighty God. It's a picture of enough is enough. It is a picture of when God's patience runs out. It's a picture of what my sin and your sin truly deserves. It's an explanation of what happens to unbelievers at the end of age. It's the seven bowls of God's judgment. And next week, we're going to begin this chapter. So come back. Guys, stay with me. Even though these episodes are long, guys, we need this. Until next time, guys, take care. My friends, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Remember that I love you with the love of Christ and I implore you to just passionately pursue Jesus with everything you have. 